the start to the last session, my name is Mark Bailey and I'm the most recent addition to the advisory board of the MDR. Can I just give a sense of the structure of this final session? Because yeah, it will be slightly different. We're, we're looking to shift from information and fascination and exemplification to, to participation. The idea is that we will have four 10-minute sessions and then use the last 20 minutes to gain a sense of where next. That's the basic structure. And if we start with a session with a PhD student from Sheffield University, Richard Gilbert, who is going to show how penetrable manorial documents are in bridging the imaginative gap between the early 16th century uh, and the 21st century. Richard. So I'm going to start with a few words about where my um, research is leading. I'm focusing on well, the, the Tinsley Court records are held within the, um, the archive of the Wentworth family from South Yorkshire. Now, their archive contains much of what you'd expect in an early modern gentry muniment room. You've got the letter books of later members of the family, title deeds, maps, and so a couple of uh, spurious genealogies that trace the family back to an Anglo-Saxon lord called Rinald de Winterwade, who they seem to have just made up. <laughs> but... The main focus is a collection of manorial documents, especially from the uh, first two manors, which the Wentworth family got hold of in 1336, uh, Hooton Roberts, which is east of Rotherham, and Tinsley. So they have these on and off collection of manorial documents in terms of what survived. But by the 16th century, the Wentworths seem to be, be more aware that they've got this archive, and they seem to be trying to, trying to build on it to increase their prestige. So this is an inspeximus document which they, uh, they sent off for from the royal government in London uh, in the reign of Edward VI. And it's relating to manors in Yorkshire which later came into the possession of the Wentworth family. So this is an inspeximus of a, of a visitation in the late 13th century by um, a man called John de Kirkby, Bishop of Ely. They're looking at the various different manors. You can see Hooton Roberts and Tinnerslaw here. And the thing I'd like to draw attention to is, is a specific service that they've managed to find by which the Lord of Tinsley, who at that time was a guy called Henry de Tinsley, but by the 16th century was Thomas Wentworth. And it's, he's found out that he has to go at Michaelmas to the castle of Tickhill with a pair of white gloves to take a hawk in keeping for the next year or pay 20 shillings instead. And this theme of finding old feudal services seems to carry on into the court rolls themselves. So this is a court roll from 1524, and it's, this service doesn't just appear in 1524, it's repeated at various stages. But it says the tenant of Capplewood Field in Tinsley has to, uh, he has to do various services in the mill. He also has to come with the Lord whenever called, on his own horse, if he has one, in the place of a squire. Yeah, and if he does not have a horse, the Lord will find him a horse. So they seem to set quite a lot of store by these um, feudal services. I think the reason for this is that in the 16th century, the Wentworth estates were expanding quite rapidly, from the original two manors to the manor of Wentworth, which I think they wanted because they wanted to be able to call themselves the Wentworths of Wentworth, and various other places in Yorkshire. And I think this may have been causing quite a bit of fear and resentment in the surrounding gentry families. So in order to shore themselves up against allegations of social climbing, the Wentworths deliberately sought antiquated feudal services that they could point to and show that they had been 
lords of the manor for, for centuries. So I think in the course of looking through their own archive for these feudal precedents, they also started, they also found more practical uses for having, for having um, an extensive archive of manorial court roles. So if we go forward to 16, about 1600, we find William Wentworth, who is qu quite a cynical man. He actually specifically states in one of his letters that he used his manorial court roles in order to arrest the representatives of the, uh, his neighbour, the Earl of Shrewsbury, who was trying to make a park inside Orgreave, which was part of the manor of Tinsley. And he, uh, he drew a lesson from this, which he passed on in his advice to his son, Thomas. And he uh, says, to paraphrase, that you should keep your archives in order because you never know what you might find in there that might be handy. He says, let all your evidence once in a quarter of a year or oftener if need require be looked for dust or rats, etc. <laughs> in addition to the legal uses, they, I think they, had found, they found financial uses for their, uh, for their records. They, start, they started compiling rentals again in the 16th century because there hadn't been any since the 14th century. But there's a rental of... There's a rental of 1511, and then there's this one from 1545, and the difference between them is quite stark. So there's free rents, which they can't, which obviously they can't change very much, and the bottom entry on here is an example of one of them. So someone called Harrisy has two, has two ox gangs of land for which he pays a pound of cumin, and uh, I think two days a year in services. But the copyhold rents are increased quite dramatically, so the total rent goes up from just over £8 to just under £13. And the, the names of the copyhold tenants, the families, seem to be all different. They're being charged um, much greater sums in rent. So George Beardsall's being charged £4, whereas the highest rent in 1511 was £2, and the next highest was only 10 shillings. I think the next step in my thesis is going to try and look at the, uh, some of the more substantial tenants who take advantage of what the Wentworths are doing. I want to follow up with some interesting things I found in the court rolls, such as a dispute between John Staniforth, who had been, um, had been renting the domain of Tinsley until about 1549, when suddenly he disappears from... He had been topping the list of jurors, but he suddenly disappears, and he's replaced by someone called Thomas Swift, who starts uh, um, imposing stringent penalties, fines, on, on Staniforth. For he, for instance, so for not repairing the usual fine, for the usual pain for not repairing hedges was something like two shillings. He starts. He says that John Staniforth must, must repair his hedges on pain of over two pounds. So, which I mean, there's a fascinating sort of local rivalry going on here. And then there's a gap in the court rolls. And by the next set of court rolls, John Staniforth is back at the top of the list of jurors. The fines are back to only a few pence for not repairing your hedges. So I'm, I need to. I want to look up the, what was going on there, and I'm going to use, in addition to the court rules, I'm going to use wills, inquisitions, and tax records. But moving on to the public engagement side of my thesis, this is an aerial picture of the Tinsley area today. <laughs> um, and I think, so pub the public engagement activities, I think, become more important in, in places <laughs> like this, in Tinsley and South Yorkshire generally, because of the amount the area has changed physically in the last two centuries. So when people, people up in Sheffield think of local history, they usually think of coal and steel, which is fair enough. But there is also 
underneath that, there is every bit as much uh, medieval and early modern heritage as there is in any well-preserved village or market town. It's just that, as you can see, it's long since disappeared under collieries, steelworks, canals, the Meadowhall Shopping Centre and the M1. Anyway, but without the physical presence of the past, the Tinsley manorial documents take on an extra importance. And with that in mind, the people that I'm collaborating with, the Healy City Farm, and I have been thinking about how we can bring the manor court rolls to life, building on this Tinsley Time and Travel project, which I wasn't involved with until I started the PhD, but they've been running for the last two years. Uh, and as you can see, they've been going from prehistory through the Roman period to the medieval period to the present day. And uh, one of the things we've done is we've brought people into the archives and we've shown them the court rolls and we've talked them through what they mean. A second thing that we're trying to get off the ground is funding for a recreation of a manor court session which, with which we go through the kind of presentments and fines that would come before the Tinsley Court in the 16th and then the English ones in the 17th century. We would then invite the audience to come up with, with modern equivalents, so to suggest things that a modern manor court might choose to bring before them. If anyone was willing, we could possibly bring them up and actually find them something like sixpence. <laughs> but in general, we'd, we'd encourage the audience to keep it general and obviously not actually present their neighbours <laughs> without their neighbours' consent. But we think that that would go a long way towards, as I said in the uh, notes, bridging the imaginative gap between modern Tinsley and the Tinsley of mention that existed in the court rolls. Thank you, Richard. I think I'd settle for that for my first time up in front of an academic uh, audience. Very well done. Uh, now I'd like to introduce uh, Linda Bankier, who has highly unusual and long track record in both archives and in community engagement. Um, she's working in, in Northumberland, and just to prove that Northumberland is no longer frontier country, she's going to talk about the innovative work that's been done between archives and the local community. Thank you. Well, I think what we've seen today so far, we've talked a lot about manorial records and manorial documents register from an academic perspective, but there's also other ways to look at it or look at other people who might want to use the records or the register. What about local and family historians? How can we reach them and tell them about it? And actually, do people really know that the register exists or how to use the records themselves? So we've considered this quite a lot in Northumberland. We've just finished our project on our manorial documents register project, updating what we have and making it available online. And it really made us think about, we've done all this work, but how can people benefit from what we've done so far? We're telling people what's there, but will they use them? Because we all want to do this work for a reason. We don't want to just create it and people see it's there and it's nice. We want people to use the records and learn from them. So we thought that we would look at our local people, local communities, and think about how we could introduce them to manorial records and for them to learn from them as a resource. They all know about parish registers, etc., but do they really know about manorial records? So what we've done is we've approached the Heritage Lottery Fund. We thought, well, that's the best place to go for some funding. So we did that early in 2018. 
and we put in a pre-app just saying this is what we want to do as part of a project working with the local community and one of the first questions that they came back to us with was is there a need for this project and, and I think that's a really important thing to think about because we all know we all can come up with wonderful ideas for projects which we would like to do but is it something that would benefit other people so leading on from that what we thought we'd do is we would undertake a little survey to find out what people knew about manorial records and the manorial documents register so we sent something out through facebook and we sent a survey out in our two search rooms we've got one in woodholm we've got one in berwick just to see what the responses would be and it was asking them questions about, about the records, had they used them, etc. And actually the results were really, really interesting what came back. So what came back were, we had 102 responses in total, which I thought was pretty good going over quite a short period of time. 60% of people didn't even know the manorial documents register existed and didn't know how to access it. And a lot of these people were people that used documents on a regular basis. So I think that's telling in itself. Also, 70% 70 70 had never actually used the record. So I think there's, we've got a barrier here, haven't we? People may know that they exist, but the problem is they don't know how to use them. They don't know how to access them or what they're going to tell them. And the barriers that they brought up were the handwriting. So obviously, as you go further back, people just can't read the handwriting. The fact that there's Latin involved, because there's so few people now that can read Latin. They didn't know what they contained. So how were they going to help them if they didn't know what they had in the first place? And a lot of them commented that there weren't digital copies of them or that the actual records weren't available online. And another thing that we asked, well, would people get involved in a project? So 60% of people said that they would be willing to get involved in a transcription project if we set something up within the county. Now, we haven't actually submitted a bid yet, so what I'm going to talk to you about is what we're proposing to do as the project and what we would do, just to give you an idea of what you could do with the community or working with people. So what is the project? Well, the project is, well, part of it is, is to make people more aware of the MDR particularly within our area. We live in a large rural area and it's often difficult for people to get to the two record offices that we have. So we propose to run workshops in our, in our own search rooms but also go, to go out through the local library network because there's lots of libraries in Northumberland and actually tell, run workshops there to tell people about manorial records and the MDR because we can't expect them necessarily to come to us. I think we have to make the effort to go out to them in their own communities. And I think it also shows a willingness on our part. We also want to set up some volunteer transcription groups in different parts of the county as well, because we can't just base everything around our record offices because they're quite difficult for people to reach. So we would work with volunteers and they would do transcriptions of us of records and also develop templates. So, for example, showing people how to use them if they're doing a history of their house or doing family history research. Because I think particularly with family history, people just aren't aware that th there's a hidden resource in there for them, particularly if they're relating to a place for which there aren't parish records. 
I'm just thinking in my own area, Tweedmouth as a parish starts in 1711. The manorial documents start back in 1658, so you could easily go further back. So who would we work with and how would we support them? Well, what we've done so far is, I think it just shows that before you go enter into any you know, heritage lottery project, you have to do a lot of groundwork. So we spent a lot of time talking to local groups to see what, if they would support us. So we've talked to local history groups throughout the county. So we've got, I've already got a good group of volunteers up in Berwick, right up in the north. They support us. Um, we've got a group down in Hexham who want to take part also in Seton Delaval, the Society of Antiquaries in Newcastle, some of their volunteers want to get involved as well. So we've tried to, to have these conversations already with the groups who will get involved with us. We're also quite keen to involve individuals as well. We appreciate that some people would like to do it from home if we give them digital copies to work with. We've done that before. I worked on a project relating to Flodden, and we had uh, volunteers working at home or working in pairs on documents, and that worked really well, so at least we know it's going to work. And obviously we would provide them with training. You can't just give them a manorial document and just expect them to know what they're going to do with it. So we would give them training on the background to the records, obviously paleography, which is really important, the diplomatic, the format of the documents and the conventions that we want them to use. So that's how we'd work with volunteers. But obviously... Um, we want some outcomes as well from the whole project. So one of our outcomes is to create a travelling exhibition, which again can go around the county. We've, we've got lots of little venues that you can use. We can even take them into small villages. There's lots of village halls. Um, and I think we've got a good network of people that we, that we know that would help us to do that. And that would tell people about the records and their use. And obviously, we also want to create a space on our website. We've already got from the MDR project, we've got a blog. We want to develop that and social media. Pick up the stories that the volunteers find, because there's lots of lovely little stories in there. Um, you know, don't necessarily merit a long article, but could be a short article on something. Also, other things that we want to do, we want to develop something for schools. I think it's very important to involve schools. <coughs> Those are our researchers of the future. Why not introduce them to archives early? So we're going to do a schools project and create an online resource for them. And also we want a space within our search room where people can find guides and information about manorial records. Now going back to the school, we've already talked to a school. Whitley Chapel First School is a school in a very rural location. It deals with, we have a first and middle school um, system, so it's going to be children's from years one to four, so up to about ten. We've talked to the teacher, and she's very keen for us to work with her, in the, with the head teacher, for the children to work with archives and with other people, and for her to create a template for us. So the school project itself will involve some partnership working, so what, you know, the, the school will work with us, but we've also got a really good local history group there who would be willing to go in that they've already worked with, so they're really keen to do that as well, so that we have a, it's, it's a three-way thing, how it all develops. The children would work with um, facsimiles of the documents. We'll introduce them to the resources and the stories that we've got, We'll also, they were very keen to create an exhibition which they would put on in the village hall next door and they also wanted some type of artistic legacy for the school. So this could be a wall hanging, um, 
based on something that they find in the manorial records. You know, th that bit's very fluid at the moment. You can't really work on that one until you've, you, know, you start the project. But it gives you an idea. And also create, create a template for an educational resource and involve the teachers in that so that they can say where it fits into the curriculum. Because that, I think that's a really important element of it. So then the template that they create will be used afterwards by other people. So our plan is that we want to, we're going to keep working on the bid and we hope to uh, submit it in the next couple of months and actually start the project in late 2019, um, just again to fit in with schools and for us to make sure that we've done all the legwork first of all so that we can do it properly. So that's one element, but there's one other thing I wanted to talk about as well. One thing that I've noticed when we've been working on the Manorial Documents project and something out of my other background, as well as being an archivist, I also work for Dundee University. I've written two modules for them and I tutor there on local and family history and paleography. And as part of that, we do do some work on manorial records, but it's very, very short. And I think one thing that we need to do is how can we help all users use these documents? They are a resource that should be used, but they're really close to a lot of people. So this is kind of just passing someone or something out to all of us here. I think it would be really useful if we tried to create some free online resource that people could use to find out about manorial documents. The TNA have got the one on paleography, the one on Latin, but you know, here's an opportunity to take the MDR further forward and create something that then leaves also another lasting legacy that people can use, which would introduce them to the different documents, tell them how to use them, what the format of them are, tell them about paleography. You know, and I think that would be something really wonderful for us to create as the project's coming near an end. So then there's something left for people to use and you know, to really make great use of this resource. It's not only the medieval documents, but if you think they go up to the 1920s, how many people actually know that? In a search room, if we asked people, they wouldn't have a clue what we were talking about. But we should be encouraging them to use these documents, learn from them, um, you know, from a personal point of view for the family history, but also for the history of their own community. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And now to introduce Professor Andrew Prescott, who will be mic'd up as I, as I speak. Over the past six years, I've been the theme leader fellow for one of the AHRC's strategic themes, Digital Transformations. This theme has funded over 100 projects, which has produced not only over 720 publications, but also many databases, apps, films, musical instruments, even 3D printing and waving. The variety of outputs from our digital transformation theme illustrates the enormous range of opportunities for researchers offered by digital techniques. The main message of the theme about what's next is that what's coming down the line will be increasingly varied in character and unpredictable in its development and disruption will remain a watchword. But what lessons do the projects funded by the AHRC hold for the future of the Manorial Documents Register? For me, the important thing at this stage about the Manorial Documents Register is that it offers very carefully edited and highly structured data 
about an important series of local records. And although I'm a great enthusiast for imaging and for getting as many images available as possible, also we all get very excited nowadays about any sort of data that's very carefully edited and prepared. And the manorial documents registers got that in abundance. And I think a first stage of development might focus on that data, on sharing the registers data, on linking the data, and on visualising it in new ways. So that's one thing I think comes out from our work on the theme that might be relevant. And the other important message is one that uh, Nick and Richard and Linda have just emphasised, is the value of engaging wider communities in this process using co-creation between communities and researchers. Well, this diagram, which I don't expect you to, uh, the point of it is not for you to see it in detail, but it illustrates some of the topics covered by projects in the HRC Digital Transformations theme. And you can see how you kind of cluster different subject areas together, and then you've got a listing for some of the themes that have come out um, on the right. But the important thing about this is that the data here about our projects was extracted from the uh, AHRC section of the Gateway to Research, Research Council database that has information about all the research projects on it. But if you go to the Gateway to Research, you won't see this diagram or any method of generating it. This diagram was extracted automatically from the Gateway to Research database by my brilliant colleague at Glasgow, Luca Guerrianto, took a list of the projects and then pulled all the information out. And the way that uh, he was able to do this was because Gateway to Research makes available some special interfaces which allow Luca and other programmers to interrogate the data in one database from their own programs. This is a facility known as an API, or an Application Programming Interface. And it's the one bit of jargon I'm going to ask you to kind of take away with you. Basically, APIs allow us to take data from one project, cut up, splice it, and remix it in loads of different ways. And you can see the possibilities of this if you look at one of the larger projects connected with the, the Digital Transformations Program, called the Digital Panopticum, which uses data from the proceedings of the Old Bailey, a huge online edition of trials in the Old Bailey from the late 17th to the uh, 20th centuries. And the proceedings of the Old Bailey make available its API, and you can use its API, if you're a programmer yourself, to define very complex categories of trials and create subgroups of data for linguistic, statistical, and legal analysis. The Old Bailey Project also has a data warehouse, which allows you to take their data and then map it and visualize it in different ways. The sorts of things that people have done is Simon Del Deo in the States has taken the Old Bailey data and produced this topic explorer to look at the way in which different types of offences are, are dealt with in the Old Bailey. This amazing diagram, that a beautiful diagram has been produced by Tim Hitchcock of the Old Bailey, 
which illustrates the varying length of trials in the Old Bailey, as trial with the, involving the use of barristers increasingly developed, and um, actually enables you to map legal changes um, over a very long period in a way that will be very difficult just reading or searching the trials from the Old Bailey. And if we wished, it would be possible to do some of the things that they've done with the Old Bailey, with the data in the Manorial Documents Register, because Discovery, the National Archives online catalogue, has made its own APIs available. Here's what you go if you go to the, uh, the, the API entry um, in, in the National Archives uh, website. Um, David Underdown of the National Archives has shown the sorts of things you can do uh, in a blog entry earlier this year. For example, showing the geographical distribution um, of ancient petitions, where they're coming from. Or, in this case, this is an attempt to visualise the addressees of petitions, which, as David comments in his blog entry, actually shows how it's not specific, particularly consistent and sort of breaks down. But it shows what potentially can be done. And if there weren't a lot of other things that I needed Luca to do for me, I would have got him to produce some visualisations from the Manorial Documents Register for you today, and we may well for the publication of this. But you could imagine that you could take the data in the Manorial Documents Register and use it to analyse geographical, chronological distribution of surviving manorial records, types of manorial records, maybe where there are different, where there are runs and whether that tells, is related to estate structure. There are all sorts of things that you can do. These APIs also help us in linking records. And I think there's some potential here for looking at links, particularly with catalogue records. Here, for example, um, the, uh, in the British Library's uh, online catalogue, you've got an incredibly vague compotos and court rolls description of a large tranche of manorial records in Hampshire, which, when you look uh, at the manorial documents register, are much more precisely described. And you could imagine the British Library catalogue actually being updated from the manorial documents register. Another area of linking that occurred to me while Herbert was speaking was possibly greater linking between the VCH and manorial documents register. So linking is a distinct possibility, which gradually may become more automated. Increasingly, in preparing large digital editions, we're using automated techniques and thinking about the world of AI. And with structured data, that sort of linking will come in. But another major feature of the HRC digital transformation scene, which I'll reinforce at the end, was the involvement of communities in the co-creation of research. And just to emphasise how what we've heard about possible community involvement in manorial records uh, is part of a wider movement, I might mention a few randomly of some of the other projects that we've got, such as a project called Fossil Finder, uh, which recruited citizen archaeologists to identify fragments uh, in high-resolution images of uh, remains on sites uh, connected with the early stages of human evolution. Or there was the Know Your Bristol project, which had a whole raft of different community local history projects, including a project for transcribing postcards, which was very successful. 
or there's the, the, the various crowd-fueled and crowd-sourced projects undertaken by the MicroPass project, which include the transcription of card indexes of Admiralty and Royal Family seals held by the Society of Antiquaries, which look almost as terrifying as some of the returns to the manorial uh, uh, documents register that we saw earlier. The community-based projects undertaken with the theme even include the online transcription of papyri. And I think if one thinks maybe that community transcription of manorial records is going to be a bit tough, well, we can report that Greek papyri have been uh, transcribed on a community basis very successfully using uh, software developed by the Galaxy Zoo project in the, uh, uh, in the University of Oxford. So uh, on the one hand, we can do a lot more with the data that's already in the Manorial Documents Register, and I think that will increase its accessibility. But on the other hand, I think to reinforce the message you've already heard, there's a lot that can be done on a community basis, and I think that development of those community links, maybe even using online transcription like this, uh, will be very important in the future of the register. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, now for the, for the last 10-minute session, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Charles Kellum, who is the archivist for Doncaster. Good afternoon. That's uh, Conisborough, as painted by one Harry Fish, who uh, donated his painting to uh, Doncaster Museums in uh, uh, bequeathing in his will. There's a certain amount of bequeathing going on in this story. The Soak of Conisborough. Um, was no single village manor, centred on its celebrated chief messwage, Conisborough Castle with its distinctive keep and notable for its, its place in Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. Uh, this was a franchise uh, initially uh, made up of uh, 30 townships scattered across, across the, uh, the southern reaches of the, the West Riding. That's the southern reaches of the West Riding, or the, the deanery of Doncaster, as it once was. By the mid-14th century, much of the lordship had passed into other hands, but uh, 16 townships remained from that point until uh, modern times. And the, there they parish, as you see, that contain townships of the, uh, of the, of the, the lordship of Conisborough, or Conisborough, as locals call it, I should say, um, uh, until uh, uh, the, the court was wound up. Now the the the, uh, the roles that uh, the, the 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 manor court produced um, it, it's it's not the largest nor is it the the most complete series of, of manor court roles although I think in uh, in Yorkshire terms I would guess that only only Wakefield uh, is in a, a a different class it it is exceptionally good there are 148 parchment rolls extant for the 368 individual accounting years between 1265-6 and 1633-4. That's a 40% survival rate. There we have the earliest surviving roll. Uh, it's not actually a court roll, it's a, a, an account, um, as you can see. But it's all grist to the mill. Um, 
no more than four rolls represent the 13th century, and there are only 21 from the, from the 14th. There's not a single roll remaining from the admittedly short reign of Henry V, but thereafter the, the coverage improved. Uh, during this period, what you might call the Middle Ages, the majority of the rolls consist of two or three membranes, although there might be as many as ten on occasion in the 14th century prior to the, the alienation of a large part of the lordship, probably not unconnected with the, the Black Death. The membranes are characteristically all fastened together at the top using a thread or parchment ligature uh, rather than with the, uh, the, them being attached um, head to tail, as it were. Uh, there's a, a roll of eight membranes that carries the, the, the record for the years 1634 to 1644. After that, the doings of the, the court during the Commonwealth are variously documented in a bound volume and an unusually large roll of 16 membranes. After a gap of 40 years, for which the record is entirely absent, there's a final 17-membrane roll for 1700 to 1716, after which it ceases to, literally to be a roll, uh, becomes bound volumes. And that's more or less the whole lot of them as they appear in our, our strong room uh, as I speak. The change in formats was just about contemporaneous with the change in the language. English, which was experimented with in the Commonwealth, finally took over from Latin in 1733. The Lordship was in the hands of a, a succession of non-resident Lords, um, including the Crown from time to time, after the, uh, the, the, the Warrens, Warrens, Earls of Surrey, had uh, died out in 1347. After, the, uh, well, eventually, um, uh, very eventually, there was a, the, the, this, this rather um, peculiar story in the Times, uh, which a, a previous Barakovist of Doncaster drew my attention to, uh, it, it hinges on um, Richard of, of, of Conisborough, in fact, uh, it turns out. He's mentioned there somewhere, there we are, paragraph two, um, who, um, whose brief and undistinguished career ended in, uh, in his being uh, uh, executed for, for treason in, uh, in Henry V's reign. Eventually, the... Uh, the, 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 the Lordship passed into the hands of the, the Pelham's Earls of Yarborough in 1886, and, and the, they give us our, our classification mark of, of DDR. When, when the fifth Earl of Yarborough died in, I think, um, the late 40s, uh, he died without a son, and um, the, the main Yarborough estates passed to a, um, a, a cadet branch. And uh, the lordships of, uh, well, the, the empty titles, as they were by then, of, of, uh, uh, of Lord of, of Cunningsborough and Lord of Wakefield, passed to um, uh, Wendy, uh, Diana and Wendy, uh, his daughters, as, as co-heiresses. And um, uh, I, I don't know how the two sisters came to the conclusion that, uh, that uh, Diana should be the, uh, the Lady of Cunningsborough, uh, but that's what she became. And... and the, these records, the, uh, the, the, the assorted manorial records, passed into her hands. By, by the 1980s, Diana, uh, now Lady Miller, was housing the, the court rolls in her Doncaster residence, but I think her, her land agent persuaded her to uh, transfer them to, to, to the local archive service, which was a bit of a coup for us. It had only been in existence uh, since 1973. Um, she, be, she drew up a will in 2012 and, uh, and bequeathed um, the records and the title, um, Lord, uh, Lord of Conisborough, uh, to um, an individual that I can't name. And this individual 
eventually decided to sell the records. These sorts of things don't come on the market very often. Uh, so we were um, forced to rely on fi finding a, 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 a valuation for them. Not easy to do. Most auction houses wouldn't touch them because there's uh, an export ban effectively on them. Eventually we did get a valuation, um, a surprisingly high one, I thought. So we were then obliged to go cap in hand to the Heritage Lottery Fund. I, or rather um, my colleagues in, in Doncaster's Heritage Services at the museum, uh, set about drawing up an application and uh, eventually succeeded in, uh, in getting a, a handsome grant which covered the purchase price and lots more besides. So the aim, as things stand, is to... Well, the, 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 the essence of it is that these things need to be made available to, to the, the wider world. Uh, they are at present inaccessible. They're certainly underused. There was a, a brief um, project in the, the early years of this millennium to uh, create a website and put a selected number of, of transcripts of the rolls online, um, but that remains fossilised. You know, partly um, the, the idea of the uh, Connisbury and Denby Main Heritage Group working in concert with the, the University of Sheffield and uh, getting money to do it from uh, the Coalfield Regeneration Fund. Um, but they, they, have, they did add a little to it by, by getting money to pay for a, 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 a Rotherham archivist to uh, do some, um, some work on the rolls. But uh, essentially, um, they left all that's available out of the 160-odd uh, that exist. We're hoping to do rather better than that. Uh, but the first thing we have to do is make them digitizable. Uh, as you can see, they're not all in the, the, the peak of condition. Especially the outer membranes have suffered a good deal of punishment over the years, and I don't think there's, there's a single one of the, the rolls that wouldn't benefit from uh, uh, some work. Uh, the, the volumes, I think, can look after themselves for the time being. They're, they're, they're in, in relatively uh, healthy condition. Uh, once conservation of well, the, 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 there is a uh, sixty rolls will be dealt with in the first first instance, and then they can be digitised. That's the crucial thing. Um, and once digitised, they can be um, um, satisfactorily studied and, and uh, translated. Eventually, um, with the, 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 I'll, I'll not detain you too much longer. The, 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 there will be extensive collaboration. Um, uh, the University of Sheffield is being brought into this. We have um, assistance from, uh, uh, well, support from, from, well, partly from Rotherham Council, um, which uh, uh, includes um, about half the, the, the townships of the, the, the manor, as things stand. Um, and um, uh, I haven't written a punchline, I, I'm afraid. There's, uh, there's, there's me in the Yorkshire Post, for, for what it's worth. Um, uh, after the, the news of our purchase broke, um, but uh, I, I'm afraid that's been uh, slightly fraudulent. I haven't really told you anything about, very much about what we're proposing to do, but the, the, the essence of it is, I mean, if you want to ask me about the, the, the various um, uh, uh, enterprises that we're, we're, we're committed to um, in order to hang on to the, uh, the readies that the fund has handed over to us, uh, I'll, I'll gladly, gladly answer. But the, the essence of it is to, to make them uh, available and, and, uh, and usable by anybody. And that's the top and bottom of it.
This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.